I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Ah, so good to worship with you this morning and to be here together. We're in a season of Lent, um, and this account of Jesus' anguish and his suffering is profound and striking. This passage we will read. All of Scripture are God's words and are to be approached with utmost authority and reverence, but there are some passages, right, that seem to have, um, that seem to stand out and are profound. This particular passage has been commented by some of the great preachers of the past, like Charles H. Spurgeon, who said, here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw, the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. Uh, No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. Uh, That's why I chose it this morning. And it's a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. Uh, William Barclay said, surely this is a passage we must approach upon our knees. Time of Lent is like that. And today, perhaps it is fitting to look at this passage. We are on the second Sunday of Lent, so it is fitting. And sin brings hardship and suffering and difficulty into our lives. So Jesus' defeat of sin and death is relevant as always. Yet this season that we're in here now, um, in the Fraser Valley particularly, there's another layer of hardship that is um, upon us. Of course, this summer we had a heat dome and the deaths that came from that. A whole town, Linton, burnt down. Um, We think in November of the atmospheric river that happened and the catastrophic flooding and devastation that occurred throughout southern BC. The psychological and financial trauma that went along will not be soon erased. The ongoing pandemic, we're two years now, has taken loved ones, has tried us all, made us weary, and has divided us profoundly. Churches are also struggling immensely at this time. And now, of course, as was prayed for so well, the the military invasion of Ukraine and the global response and the fallout. In this passage today, not only because of our sin and the normal difficulties of life, but because of that extra heaviness and hardship that seems to be strung one after another that follows us, this passage is for us today. In Spurgeon's words, Uh, We may come prayerful. Some of us are heartbroken and disturbed. Primarily because of our own sin, if we look deep or not so. But for the extra layers of suffering, disunity, loss, and violence that's surrounding us today. My prayer is that we will be taught and guided and the Lord would meet gracefully with us today through his word. Let's pray together. And then we'll read the passage. Lord Jesus Thank you that you are present with us. And we look back at your word that was written a long time ago, but speaks fresh. Uh, May our ears hear, may our eyes see. May we be open to your word. Speak to your church, encourage her, and strengthen her, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, we'll read verses 36 right down to uh, verse 46. Uh, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to them, sit here while I go over and pray. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for an hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This account of Jesus takes place, we're told, in a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane, we know, is located on the side of a mountain. It's uh, a mountain that faces west towards Jerusalem. It's called the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, you know, is a mountain here, and there's a valley, and then there is the city of Jerusalem. There's two mountains or, or hills side by side. Uh, the one on Jerusalem where the Temple Mount is is a bit lower than the Mount of Olives. And you have two mountains that are separated by a valley called the Kidron Valley. And the Mount of Olives rises slightly higher than the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And if you're on the Mount of Olives and you look down, you have a wonderful view of eastern Jerusalem, particularly the, Mount of, or the Temple Mount and the Golden Dome you can see there today. The Mount of Olives is a long ridge, about two miles long or so. And it runs um, up and down Mount Scopus as part of it too. It's made up of sedimentary rock with chalk. It's a soft chalk that is easily burrowed or dug into. And it's one of the reasons there's many man-made uh, uh, caves or graves on the side of the mountain. And the western side of the Mount of Olives is uh, used as a Jewish cemetery for thousands, 3,000 years and holds today approximately 150,000 graves. And it's the central location of Jewish cemeteries. And when you look at the, the Mount of Olives, there's this gray, large section that uh, are all graves. And you can walk among them. You're reminded when you look there of your mortality, of your own pending death. So there's graves on Mount Olives. What else? Well, today you would see buildings, churches, uh, grave sites, of course, tour buses, roads, shops, some trees. Now, soil on the western side of the Mount of Olives is particularly good, especially near the bottom of the mountain, near the Kidron Valley, thanks to the winter rains that bring the soil and the sentiment down to the bottom uh, near the valley below. 
And in Jesus' day, if you were on the Temple Mount and if you looked over at the Mount of Olives, you know, you're looking east, you would notice not only graves dug out in the hillside, but you would notice things that would grow there because of the good soil. Groves, particularly olive groves. Hence the name, the Mount of Olives. So also on the Mount of Olives um, is, is life, it's growth, it's vibrancy. Quite a contrast to the graves which remind us of death. The Mount of Olives represents both death and life. Hardship, loss, suffering, and joy, hope, and vibrancy, and life. In the other Gospels, it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. The biblical term for gone, where we get the English word garden, indicates a, a protected area, a plot of ground surrounded perhaps by a stone wall where an owner would work the soil, reap the rewards of the soil. And the best English translation of gone is the word garden, intended to be a peaceful place of growth, life, and provision. The Garden of Gethsemane is located on the western slope of the Mount of Olives near the bottom, very close to the Kidron Valley. It's just a short walk to the city of Jerusalem from there. And Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem, would retreat often with his disciples in his garden, to this garden. Notice what it says in John 18, 1-2. When he had finished praying in Jerusalem, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. So you get to see a bit of the geography and what was happening on the Mount of Olives. The interesting thing is the name Gethsemane. It means, from the Hebrew word, olive press. An olive press is a device that uses mechanical advantages of a lever and weights to, prov uh, to provide an incredible amount of pressure on a burlap-type sack of, of, of olives so that you would squeeze down on this sack of olives and the oil from it would drip out, be captured underneath by a trough. So a, a Gethsemane is an olive press that uses immense pressure to extract the oil. So Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, which reminds us of both life and death. And you see groves and you see graves. And he's there in a garden, normally a peaceful place of growth in life. And he's praying under immense pressure, overwhelming pressure. And he self-describes it as to the point of death. And it's interesting that Matthew, the writer, would say uh, about this oil and the Gethsemane, because olive oil, although used for many things like a lamp or for cooking, is, was also used for anointing, anointing someone for religious purposes, for an office. For Jesus is the Christ. The Christ means the anointed one, and you would anoint someone with oil. So Jesus is in the garden. It's late, it's dark, and he's in anguish. And while talking to his father, he asks his father in verse 39, he asks him, if you notice in the passage three times, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And what is this cup? 
that he speaks of. And you can presume it because we know the story. But in, in those times, people who were tried in court and found guilty and were sentenced to execution were at times executed by having to drink a cup of terrible poison. And the biblical prophets used that image as a metaphor for the wrath of God because of your and my sin, the sin of God's people. Here's some references. Isaiah 51:22 describes the cup as the goblet of my wrath. Jeremiah 25, verse 15 calls it the wine of my wrath. And in Ezekiel 23, 31 to 34 talks about the cup of ruin and desolation that was brought above upon Samaria. So here we have Jesus, the anointed one, in a garden, next to graves, suffering because of your and my sin. And we know the story that in just a little bit more, he will die. We marked that on Good Friday. And, we, and he comes to life defeating both death and sin and gives victory and salvation to those who believe. That's Easter and life after. And, and so we have this incredible contrast that's happening all at the same time. Um, you have both suffering and you have life. You have sin, you have forgiveness. You have loss and you have victory. They're there all at the same time. And isn't that a sampling of, of our lives as well? Isn't this also your and my experience of this life here? We have joy. We have sorrow. We have victory. We experience loss. We have much and we have little. You know, a couple days ago, on March 10, uh, Patty and I celebrated our granddaughter's first birthday. And this little granddaughter, she's special, as all granddaughters are. She's so precious. One year old, on March 10, she was born. And uh, she is such a joy. Well, two years ago, on March 10, my, uh, my own father passed away. And there's sorrow and loss. So there you have it on March 10. Incredible joy and life and vibrancy and hope. And you have, you have death and sorrow. There's sadness and loss. In life, there's death and there's life at the same time. And you have both in our lives. And we have both here in Gethsemane. You have both on Easter weekend. We have life and hope in the resurrection of Jesus, and we live now as broken, suffering people in this world. Tim Keller says this, the basic premise that most people believe about religion, that if you live a good life, things will go well for you. It should. You deserve it. That premise, he says, is wrong. That premise is wrong because think of Jesus the most morally upright person who ever lived, yet he had a life filled with torture, poverty, rejection, injustice. Suffering is part of this life, and we should not be surprised when it comes. We have been prepared for it by his Spirit. And if you've been looking to the right places, you are ready. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you 
as though something strange were happening. People of God, we should not be surprised at what's happening. That this is strange. God's people has been struggling throughout all of eternity, all, all years. Peter says, this hardship is not strange, yet we may think of this time as a strange time, you know. But in the big picture, in the story of redemption, in the history of God's people, there has always been hardship. And what do we learn from this passage in the Garden of Gethsemane? How do we go into tomorrow or this afternoon in this reality that we're all in of hardship, division, and violence? How do we position our hearts? How do we think about this? What do we fill our hearts and our minds with? Will we walk with fear and the stories of fear? Or is there something else to fill our hearts and minds with? Jesus' time in the Gethsemane shows us not only his path to the cross for our redemption and salvation, but there's also something here that's remarkably profound for us today. It's unusually practical. Let's take a look. Jesus says in Matthew uh, 26, verse 39, My Father, very intimate terms, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, not, yet not as I will, but as you will. And, and this prayer and this conversation with His Father that Jesus has, you know, it, at first look seems to be a prayer of surrender. And truly it was. Remarkable surrender and that alone is a life to live a, a stalwart focus in the face of enormous pressure that he could have easily just scampered over the back side of the mountain right through bethany onto the galilee where he was home and no one would have known he could have easily escaped it but this pressure to continue into the mission that his father had sent him on earth to accomplish was real. And here we see Jesus surrendering to his father. But, but there's more here. How did Jesus get to this? Is he just a surrendering? Is his will just that much better than ours? Look a few chapters earlier in Matthew. What do you see? There is someone who comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? You know, of all the 613 or so commandments of the Torah, they came to test him, which is the greatest? And Jesus says, and you know the answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Powerful words of love to God. But where did Jesus get those? He got them from Scripture. The first part, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is from Deuteronomy 6. And the second part, love your neighbor yourself, is Leviticus 19, verse 18. Jesus is living out the very words of God. He quotes Scriptures and he teaches others about the application of that here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's, and it's this, it's everything you are love God with. Your heart, your mind, and your soul, everything you have 
love God with. Every moment you have is dedicated to the love of God at all times. Enjoy an easy time celebrating a first birthday love God and in the sorrow and loss of a father love God. In peace, love God. In war, love God. In justice, love God. And in injustice, love Him. And then Jesus says, love your neighbor. He actually said, the second is like it. How much like it? Well, love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it, Jesus is saying, those few chapters earlier, don't hold back in love for your neighbor. Don't skimp out. Be reckless about it. Love God totally, yes, and love your neighbor totally. We are, as Jesus followers, people of love of God and of people. Whether we're in hardship or ease, whether we are experiencing blessing or loss, whether we're in a time of violence and injustice or a time of peace and prosperity, and Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not only surrendering to the mission but he's showing us how to live loving God and loving our neighbor. Jesus loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, the greatest commandment, full and utter surrender. And we see that when he says, not my will, but yours. Isn't that the life we're called to? Not my will, but yours, Father? Isn't that the discipline of this life, of laying down our will and following the words of God found in Scripture? And, and why would Jesus, in one hand, do that? Why would he want to go to the cross and trust that the Father would raise him up on the third day? Why would he do that? Because he loves us, his neighbors. We are Jesus, not only his adopted children, siblings, but we are also, we could think of, as his neighbors. He's loving God so he can redeem you and I, and that is what he's called to, which is to love his neighbors. And and the question is for us, as Jesus wrestled with it, would would this Father in heaven, in Jesus' experience, this absence of, of him, this time of death he would go through, this suffering and enduring the weight and the immense pressure of sin, would, would this Father continue to be loving and faithful? That's our question too each moment too, isn't it? When we choose to surrender or not. What is this God our Father like? Is He the type that we could fully surrender? Is He good? Will He come through even though it seems like things are following apart? Will it be built up again? That's the trust we need to have. Jesus knew his Father to be powerful, loving, and faithful, and most of all would keep his word. And Jesus is loving God even though he's called to death himself. Love to the end. Why? Because he loves you and I as well, his neighbors. It's the call of his father on his life. And because Jesus suffered, our suffering, the disunity, the violence, um, the, what's happening now is, is not final. 
It's here now, it's real, but it's not the end. It will be better. We have a future, a hope that we live within. It's a hope that we hang on to. It's a hope that is real. It's a hope that is reminded in times of today when we take communion. There will be healing. There will be a bringing together. There will be a proclamation that He is Lord. There will be a strengthening. The kingdom of God prevails. This is our hope. And Jesus, He drank from the cup of God's wrath. Why? So we, His people, would never have to. And in place of that cup, He invites us to drink the cup of communion with Him, which is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And we're reminded of what He has done. And we live how He calls us today. But now let's pray and remember through communion what He's done on the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our hope, our Restorer, our Savior. We thank you. We worship you. We surrender to you. And today we pray that you would strengthen us, your people, your church, as we remember your body broken on the cross, your blood spilt for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Thank you that you took the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the cup of communion with you this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.